Mariah Carey, everyone. Christmas. Uh, we were just saying Mariah Carey owns Christmas music. Yeah. You said in a pop culture sense. In a pop culture sense, certainly. What else is on that album? All I Want for Christmas is You. Is there anything else that we would know? Um... I don't know. What a great question. Oh, Holy Night is on there. Oh, Holy Night. Which, what a great Christmas song. That song is called Baby, Please Come Home. It's called Christmas, but then it's Baby. This song we just heard. Yeah. Miss You Most at Christmas Time. Joy to the World. Jesus is Born This Day. I love Joy to the World. Santa Claus is Coming to the Town. Hark the Herald Angels. Well, listener, new listener, thanks for enduring that. Um, yeah. We're going to do it this different. Um, yeah. Here's a quick introduction to say... That um, we're flip flopping the show, so our normal weekend roundup throwaway material that we do that we just love so much is yeah. coming at the end. And that's in case there are new listeners who are really here for the real show, which is Dr. Jonathan Tran, who you'll hear join us in just a second. Such a great guy. Yeah, we had so much fun talking to him. It was a great conversation. Very smart, very talented, and very funny. Yeah, yeah. Put that on his his resume. So, <laughs> listeners. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tran. Those of you interested, you can hang around after the break to hear us talk about life. Shoot the breeze. All right. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another week of It Was Either This Or. Um, we are so excited to have our friend, um, Dr. Jonathan Tran, here to talk to us about his new book. Dr. Tran, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So the name of the book is Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. Um, I, I do think because um, not everybody knows you and we're behind a microphone, if you could self-disclose how you identify racially, that would just be uh, clarifying for some folks as they kind of ingest. And Does that feel fair? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Asian American and specifically Vietnamese American. I came here at the end of the Vietnam War. Okay. All right. Well, um, so I should say this about the other interviews you've done. I was just watching your interview with Dr. Coakley. And Dr. Uh, help me out. Vincent Lloyd. Lloyd. And um, I, I will say Taylor and I probably are your lowest brow interview you're going to do <laughs> on this book tour. Um, but I think that has an advantage and maybe we can represent a listener that hopefully you're trying to reach. Well, um, I mean, in in some large measure, the book is about the local church. So this is, in my mind, some of the most important kinds of conversations I can have. Well, we're honored. Yeah. Okay. So I just said to you both a second ago. Um, you, uh, by the way, uh, are newly found on Twitter, um, and it's, uh, well, tell us about your name, at Cat Jonathan <laughs> Tran, um, to yeah, get well, right. well, my Vietnamese name is Cat Tran, okay. uh, and I should have gone by Cat because it's a much shorter name, and it's a great basketball name. It yeah. suggests greater athleticism than I will ever have, <laughs> but Cat is my Vietnamese name, and when we came to America, our church, our uh, family was adopted by a Lutheran church. Okay. And so they named me, Jonathan, and my brother, a year older, David. Okay. So And David is named after, I my son David is named after my brother, David. Um, it, how about, though, because I'm sure most people's mind went to the same place minded. Uh, the English cognate cat, or the English equivalent is an animal. Is It's not that in Vietnamese? No, it's it's uh, just, I think, a family name or something okay. like this. Well, that's cool, then. So there's a reference there. I think you're a great Twitterer, if that's the word. Um, but the the tweet, the poll you posted yesterday that I think is a, a fast track into this discussion is this. You asked, you put a poll up, semi-serious, mostly curious, straw poll. Does the popularity of the pejorative term Karen for white women indicate that race and class trump gender and society's collective conscious? Um, so I guess, A, what's your answer to that question? And then B, um, you shook your head when I asked earlier. Uh, and this is just a way for you to explain the book. Why is this a helpful question in, into your work? 
Yeah, so I was curious about the popularity of um, Karens or Karen in, as a pejorative term to describe uh, certain white women and certain behaviors, I guess, associated with white women, such as calling the police on people of color uh, or, say, just racializing people that they meet. Uh, and clearly the particular instances, like, for example, this case in Central Park. Right. Uh, about this woman of weaponizing her um, gendered identity against a black man, and this is the one that was caught on camera with the the dogs and the dog yeah. ball. Okay, and this is a, this is like in the you know the beginnings of yeah. COVID, so it was, it's all kind of foggy in our recollection. It was like March of 2020. I think it actually yeah. occurred before we shut down or something. Yeah, like it was that. just it was you know it was just in that whole period. But you have this instance that's clearly problematic. Um, and I think was prosecuted by uh, New York City accordingly. But then it became a, a kind of popular term of art of describing white women and problematizing white women. And the strange thing about that is it's not like white women have had an easy go of it, um, right? The histories of patriarchy and domination within institutions and families and certainly religious communities is as old as religious communities and continues, I think, in some very seriously unabated ways in our contemporary context. So the move to then think about this question mainly in terms of race um, and then in terms of class as if uh, these gendered realities were not always already present and continue to be present just seems strange to me. Now, it was an open question to me, the, the straw poll. Uh, I think I had some worries about it going in a certain way, but maybe some people might say it's, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that gender is subordinated to race and class. It may mean that gender now needs to be thought of in terms of race and class. And if that's the case, then that's actually super helpful. I mean, there's a, there's a movement within kind of academic world and in some ways the popular political world about what's called intersectionality. And the idea is that there are multiple lines of identity. If part of what that means is is at some level destabilizing any one individual identity, or at least relativizing it in relationship to identity, other identities, that's good. But there's also ways in which that can go poorly. So what's your answer to the question then? I think in general, yes. Um, I'm not sure we know what to do with gender. I also don't know we know what to do with class. Um, the emphasis right now seems to be on issues of race. Um, and those there, that is for obviously incredibly important reasons. Uh, but as my book tries to argue, you can't really understand race if you don't understand class. And I'm very happy for someone else to come alongside me and say, you can't understand either without also gender, um, in the history of the West. So, but my, my book is primarily at the section intersection of race and class, and there has been a way of thinking about race issues as if they're divorceable from class issues, whereas what I try to argue is that race is a function, a product um, of class economic, political economic warfare. Well, I think that's fascinating. I want to ask a quick question that sort of uh, has more to do with the Twitter poll than where I feel like you're going really quickly. And I wonder if that is, um, do you feel like maybe particularly uh, not in the West, but in like the United States, if the issue of uh, gender and race might have a particular tenor because of like, um, well, probably because of slavery and because of the way that 
white women benefited from whiteness that is like a particular context that doesn't exist in the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely the case. So, um, uh, I mean, you could think about it in terms of the role that white women and gender power was accrued to white women on the uh, plantation. Right. Uh, you could think about it that way, the ways it was accrued throughout the um, kind of chattel slavery society, say mm-hmm. pre-Civil War uh, society. But you could also think about it on the, on the um, converse <clears throat> side that oftentimes when there were liberationist movements on behalf of women, those benefits didn't accrue to black folks right. and black women. And so that's what I mean. If You could think about it in intersectional ways, mm-hmm. right? So let's say on the one hand, uh, white women's liberation movements mm-hmm. um, were often devoid of considerations of race, mm-hmm. right? Just like within black freedom struggles, oftentimes women were not included in that. And that's mm-hmm. why you had to have a black feminist and womanist mm-hmm. forms of discourse. So that's what my idea is, is that we need to bring these things together to mutually illuminate the lines of oppression, how they mutually inform each other. Uh, I think the danger isn't bringing on board as many of these intersections as possible. Uh, The danger is excluding them, isolating them from one another. Taylor, um, did you ask that question because you feel like kind of the residue of that relationship still exists isn't at play in the current conversations we're having about um, intersectionality? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Because, well, and also because it does feel, I've been feeling more and more the context of the United States, I feel like, in these conversations and the way that, like, you know, the past 500 years of, like, this country's existence, like, has, how it has borne itself out and how it still affects, like, what we the way we're still living now and how we talk about some of these things uh okay dr tran i um full disclosure to listeners i haven't had the opportunity to read the book yet i have listened to a few of dr tran's um, interviews and other places and i've discussed with him content of the book though it's been a while um i do want to draw on one name and and i'm not trying to push you to the brink of controversy i think though that before we can talk about the way that class and racism meaningfully can I don't know what the word was there. Uh, we can meaningfully talk about their relationship with each other. Um, we have to talk about what I think you're saying is not working. So uh, a name you had cited as you think, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but perhaps a critique was White Fragility, which is Beverly D- D'Angelo's book. Um, certainly there's some truthful things she speaks in there, but can you speak to what you think, if I understand you correctly, is the short-sightedness of some of these attempts to try and address racism, unless I've misunderstood you in asking the question? Yeah, so there's a present reality and there's a historical context with all things. So DEI culture, diversity, equity, inclusion, which uh, Robin DiAngelo's work is often not only associated with, but I think she's seen as the kind of paragon example, the champion of this kind of discourse and set of practices. So that has a history and it largely arose. uh, I mean, we tend to think of it as simply a present reality. But DEI has been a part of culture, I mean, corporate cultures, university institutions, nonprofits like churches, uh, you know, from the 1970s going forward. And what was interesting in the 1970s in American history was that you had, of course, just prior to that, an extraordinary movement of radical politics that was asking us to question just about everything about how our society is put together. At that point, the conversation was deeply 
tied to questions of structures and systems and institutions. So if you're going to think about, say, patriarchy, you're going to think about it how it's born in family systems. If you're going to think about racism, you're going to tie it to questions of poverty, as was the case with, say, Dr. King, Malcolm X, uh, the black radical tradition, et cetera, et cetera. What happens in the 70s is you begin to see an increasing um, disconnect between questions of social justice and questions of institutions. Uh, it becomes increasingly individualistic and privatized. Not surprising in the broader culture, there's a huge um, growth of what you might call individual therapeutic culture. The idea of justice then is no longer tied to systems. It's really about self-reification, self-discovery, uh, self-liberation. Of course, the massive background of all this is the growth of Reaganite and Thatcherite uh, neoliberal political economies. And what I mean by that was the belief that if capitalism was to survive eventualities like the civil rights movement, it was going to need to tie its um, future to the government. And the government made the same simultaneous same decision. You see this in the banking industry. So what we saw in 2008 was largely downstream from a set of decisions the U.S. government made that no matter where we go as a society, the banking industry is going to be the backbone of it. And come what may, the government will support it. So you see the, uh, the ascension of all these realities and DEI grows in the middle of it. What this meant then was that social justice or anti-racism was going to be increasingly tied to an individualistic affair, um, disconnected from these larger realities, which then means that DEI isn't simply a distraction from systemic forms of anti-racism. It's actually a further attack on it. Um, it, it, right, it. It goes after the very conversations that we need to have about social economic political economic justice and so uh so that's why you know so that's the past and this has been well documented by a, a number of uh, studies now the present reality is that dei generally doesn't work uh, and it doesn't work for some pretty obvious kinds of reasons um it doesn't work because you know as sona um Mona Sue Weismark, a psycho psychoanalyst from harvard just did in a book called the science of diversity it doesn't work because people don't like to be told they're racist. Now, um, it's hard to develop a practical institution committed to anti-racism if you start off on the wrong footing. It's what she calls the preemptive double pejorative. If you walk into a room and tell a bunch of your coworkers uh, you're racist, it's going to be hard for them to get on board with you, to do anything. Now, you may be right about that. Uh, and it, they, it, you may be absolutely right that they're benefiting from systems of advantage. Uh, but studies have shown this just doesn't tend to work. It's not simply that it doesn't get you greater diversity in your company. It actually works in counterproductive ways. And there's been pretty, this has been pretty well documented. Um, so, you know, folks like D'Angelo push for a certain discourse that seems to suggest that the primary issue is individual white racists, uh, which in my mind, just produces further recitals of white guilt, reinforcing the white supremacist idea that the most important thing about a white person is that they're white. I think we need to get away from telling white people that they're white. I think they both know that intuitively by the advantages accrued to them in a society, but they're persistently told that by both sides, white nationalists, white supremacy, um, and you know the left's attempt to kind of get us towards some form of anti-racism. One clarifying question. If I understood you correctly, you said the DEI work actually ends up attacking some of these conversations 
that could be helpful. Can you yeah. give us an example, uh, made up or not, about how that plays out? Yeah, so in my mind, um, racism, and this gets to kind of the constructive argument I, 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 I try to offer about what racism is. So, so here's a popular version of what racism is, and popular and I would say all too convenient. Uh, racism is a set of bad beliefs I have in my mind about people of color, um, and those beliefs are funded um, by, say, stereotypes or prejudices or certain experiences I have through the media or what have you. Uh, and so I have bad thoughts about brown people. And, you know, uh, this leads me to have, say, racist behaviors. Um, and we tend to have hyperbolic examples in our mind. I go burn a cross on somebody's lawn. Um, and then sometimes these individual personalistic wrong beliefs rise to the level of systems and structures. They get, quote, institutionalized. I think that largely has it backwards. I think racism is a structure and system of advantage that has to do with political economic realities that then produces racist individuals. In the popular version of things, it's an easy enough fix. You get people to think in terms of diversity. You introduce multicultural programs. You get people who white people to read books about people like me so they understand better my history so that I'm not, uh, say, a virus or something like that. I think we've done that for decades and we haven't really seen material differences. Um, it's, it's, it's a kind of cultural version or analog to the DEI trainings. Uh, we try to get white kids to read books about, you know, kids, uh, people of color as, as if get, get changing their hearts and minds will change our society. But what we've noticed is that all the while, the structures and systems of inequality persist. In some ways, they've significantly widened. Um, and of course, people, um, people of color are extraordinarily disproportionately affected by these realities. And so that's what I mean. It's, it's, it's not simply a disconnect, but the distraction cuts against the very kinds of conversations we need to have. Let me give you a practical example. People often think about, right, we, we live in Waco, the three of us. And we've seen a fair amount of gentrification in East Waco. For those of the those who don't know, East Waco is the history, I mean, is the site of a really profound history of black life and dignity in the context of slavery, post-slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, et cetera, et cetera. East Waco was the site of uh, thriving families, um, amazing forms of uh, community and education and uh, black uplift. Uh, well, if you go to East Waco now, you see largely dilapidated, dilapidated structures, um, the migration of white folks and right, white folks, brown folks, black folks out of those communities. Uh, you see, you know, our kids, uh, your spouse teaches at a school um, that used to be one of the most powerful sites of education in the state of Texas. And it's, you know, it's in largely disrepair, some of these buildings. So, but we do see white folks moving in um, through forms of gentrification. Now, how do we think about that? In the popular version of things, we think that this is a story largely about black people versus white people. Uh, and there's some truth to that. Um, but studies actually showed that gentrification is less about, say, straight black and white folks and black and white racism it has much more to do with things like how much people are being paid, the level of investments on the parts of cities, mm -hmm. the ways permitting and um, um, how, how zoning works, 
right? The level of investment, a disenfranchisement, whether local communities have access to political power and organizing. These are the large determinants of inequality, and they accrue clearly and absolutely along color lines. But we, that gets lost if the narrative is, say, whiteness against blackness. Um, it works somewhat like that, but it has to do with these larger realities. Now, let's say we say there's a problem with gentrification in um, East Waco. And so let's get together and talk about white guilt. And then there's this recital at the end, just like an evangelical um, retreat. Saturday night, everyone <laughs> turns to Jesus. At the end of the DEI training, all the white people feel terrible about themselves. What doesn't get done? It's like the evangelical retreat. Nothing actually changes. No one divests of power. There's no accountability to structures and systems. There's no government interventions in its own forms of disadvantage, right? And so this is what I mean. This is class warfare, poverty, war against the poor by other means. It's just got the brand of the left uh, stamped on top of it. I'm thinking. Um, okay. So uh, there was an article in the Atlantic a few years ago, and it was about education and the solutions to educational problems. Um, I think the punchline of the article was the number one predictor of um, academic performance was household income. Um, is that a, a way to understand what you're proposing in the book? Um, you know, and obviously that's an example, and you're talking about an idea, but uh, you had mentioned we decided in 2008 obviously before then that the backbone of the way that this country operated was ultimately going to be economic and probably capitalistic. Um, so if, if I do all the algebra, is the, um, is the solution then something like reparations? Or is it change in economic policy? Or have I misunderstood um, what you're proposing? Yeah, I mean, if you go with my proposal, that's precisely the right question. I mean, we've seen this. You talked about education and household income. We could talk about something even more immediately urgent in, in this season, which is uh, COVID-19. Who's died, right? Who, who's gotten the most sick? Who's been hospitalized at the highest rates? It's people of color. Um, now, you may think that's because there's something genetically or biologically about them that makes them more vulnerable. Um, sometimes that's been suggested. Actually, if you look at it, uh, and the evidence is remarkably clear, it has to do with histor historical disparities. Who has access to health care? What kind of housing do you have? What kind of job do you have? Does your job allow you to work from home? Like, you know, as a, as a white-collar, really well-paid professor, I can just stay at home. Uh, I have also, because English is my primary language, I have access to uh, the information that's being given by the government, which usually first comes in English. So... These are the determinants about who got sick, who got hospitalized, and who died. I mean, here's a remarkable statistic. Uh, in the early days of COVID, or I think in the first year of COVID, um, Filipino Americans um, who make up, I think, 4% of the U.S. workforce of frontline primary care health uh, of people, usually in the nursing industry, Filipino Americans are 4%. They accounted for nearly a third of all the nurses who died, um, right? Is that something about their genetics? Well, that's, that's a laughable suggestion. It has to do with who gets put in the front lines of these industries. Um, and so we could talk about racism, but unless we come to terms with how racism works um, as a political economic reality, remember race was created 
to encourage and facilitate and justify these systems until we get into those conversations, right? Where in some sense, I guess I'm arguing uh, these things will be left untouched. And, and I should say for all your listeners, none of this is even original, much less controversial with me. This has been a line of argument among the black radical tradition, what's often called black Marxism, for like 100 years. For a long time, they've been making these arguments. And I think the rationale in their mind went something like this. Of course, it has nothing to do with us. It's not something about us or our lack of being, quote, quote humans that then needs to be proven it has to do with a system of domination that wants to use us to justify itself, wants to use us for its labor and capital, and then wants to justify it by gaslighting us, by saying, you know, the reason East Waco is, you know, such as it is, isn't because we have systems of extraordinary inequality and domination and exploitation, and therefore we need to question those systems. It's about you people. It's about you, black people. It's something natural to you. It's something called race, and you're unfortunately on the wrong end of it, right? I think black Marxists real, just read that for what it obviously was, and then they stepped back and said, well, let's then analyze what's really happening here. Right. I, I think this is my question, because I, I mean, I think everything you said is correct. I and I And also that, like, the personal sort of, like, personal therapeutic like sense of like I could just make myself into a better person that doesn't believe these things obviously has failed us right you know what I mean it's Mm -hmm. not really the problem um but I do wonder what you do and when when this is the way you think about things with people who like aren't even engaging at that level, right? So with people who are white supremacists who do say like, well, because I'm a white person, I'm fully human, and any person of color is like some percent less human than I am, like, um, especially in this country at this point, right, where we do have people just professing that openly in the streets and as politicians, like, you know? So how do you how do you address that sort of issue? Because I do think that also affects people do you know what i mean it affects people's like daily lived experience yeah this is a great question one way we might think about this is the current conversation around um, critical race theory or crt Mm -hmm. so um and and some of the response by folks on the right to crt which is you know to single-handedly dismiss it Mm -hmm. you think about the southern baptist um um public um dictum last year Mm -hmm. a call to completely uh, disconnect themselves from anything smacking of CRT. Mm-hmm. And this has clearly been weaponized as a boogeyman on the right, just, you know, turn on Fox News and this kind of thing. Well, first of all, CRT is a remarkably complex set of conversations. It mm-hmm. began among um, black legal scholars, brilliant black legal scholars, who showed uh, how these systems work and in, in how we think about the law mm-hmm. at the highest levels. Um, And it became, over time, uh, an amazingly diffuse set of conversations. Mm -hmm. Like any conversation, there are good and bad parts of it. That's the nature of intellectual life. Mm -hmm. Um, But to group it all as X, and X is either absolutely good or absolutely evil, is just, um, you know, lacking in intellectual honesty. I think that the response to CRT on the part of the right that wants to say something like, we just have no time for this, and then to Christianize that argument to say it's against God or something like mm-hmm. that, or it's against white people, it wants to re- replace white people, that kind of conversation. I think that 
has to do with a white nationalism, Mm -hmm. but I think there's an easier way to describe it. It's people whose advantages can't stand the possibility of any type of interrogation. Mm -hmm. It's living in a society where benefits certainly move in a certain direction Mm -hmm. and in obvious ways and not wanting to have your stuff dealt with, right? Not having what wanting to be able to keep your lifestyle and your forms of life, Mm -hmm. uh, which have happened over centuries, you want all that untouched. So people who resist CRT, my guess is they don't want to think about CRT because they don't want to think about their lives. Mm -hmm. Wendell Berry articulated this really powerful, um, powerfully. He, He said that, you know, white people in our country have done two things. One, they've enslaved and killed tons and tons of black people. And two, they've pretended that they haven't. Um, and the benefits um, for them come with an extraordinary burden. They have to perpetually lie to themselves. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really good way of describing the response to CRT. No one wants to be woken out of their, you know, their slumber. Um, it's like it's the old adage of, you know, you don't wake someone from uh, sleepwalking because it, it's going to be a pretty response. I mean, violent response. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of what you have going on with the anti-CRT thing. My thinking the, is this about CRT. Um, if you're serious about anti-racism, mm-hmm. you're going to look for every tool in the toolbox to think through it. Some of that's going to be really great as a lot of CRT is, and some of it's not going to be, but you're going to try to work through and try to find available lights wherever you can find it. To see, to offhand dismiss it suggests to me you either don't know what CRT is, which is probably the case, um, or you're not actually serious about anti-racism. Mm. And to your question, Pastor Taylor, what do you do with that entire swath of Americans? Yeah. I have no idea. Okay. My, my book is not a book written to racist. Right. I, I, that's not a conversation I'm interested in having, as I'm sure you all aren't. My converse, my the conversation I'm interested in having is with committed anti-racists, mm-hmm. asking the question: Is this is the way we're currently thinking about it the best way we can think about it? Right. Uh, I have a question. I don't know that I um, have thought about this before, but I have not ever heard you in our conversation uh, make political commitments. Um, and I don't know if you're thoughtful and careful about doing that or not doing that. Um, I do want your opinion on this, though. Um, another way to ask the question I was asking earlier that ultimately was about DEI work is that um, the left, which presumably, if your proposal has a friend politically, it would seem to have more support there currently, um, is an interesting place in terms of their own uh, development as a political party. Um, and and if, you know, if I could just draw on some figures generally to, to paint this picture, and of course it's more nuanced than this, you have former President Obama, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton on one side, who I've been told this word is pejorative, so I use it carefully, but um, carry the flag of identity politics. And then um, on the other side, you have Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and um, Senator Sanders, who represent a different way of of solving these problems. One, um, do figures like Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez make a lot more sense to you uh, theologically? And um, if so, um, do you... uh, do you think that the, the, the party is going to have to figure this out to actually solve this problem? Do we need both voices? Or um, do you would you champion somebody's work like Senator Sanders? Yeah, this is a really fantastic and crucial set of questions. So one of the figures, I, one of the black Marxists I tried to give a lot of attention to in the book is a um, black race theorist, black so- sociologist, uh, whose name was Oliver Cromwell Cox. 
And Cox thought that what we are facing in what he called racial capitalism, or what was later called racial capitalism on his behalf, uh, is the idea that what racism is, is the use of um, race fictions to justify exploitation and domination. If that is the case, then the forms of domination accrue across a broad range of so-called races. It's not simply black folks um, that are being oppressed. It's also yellow folks, right? Think about, as I write about in significant measure in the book, the history of the quote-unquote Chinese question as poor Chinese laborers, quote-unquote coolies, were brought over as cheap capital uh, in the 19th century. Um, But it's also the case that it's not simply poor black folks and poor yellow folks. It's also poor white folks. Uh, And certainly in our day and age, poor brown folks. What Cox wanted us to see is what was similar and different across these lines of oppression. And what he saw was a political economic system by which elites created race fictions explicitly to pit people against one another such that they think that the things making their lives um, unlivable was other races, rather than the political elites who engineered the entire system so that they could A, make money hand over fist, and B, get away scot-free. So what Cox said is that the best way forward is to find forms of coalitional solidarity across lines of racial difference. You can, say, you can make the same argument, I think, in terms of cross-gender. Um, how do you s- learn to see both your specific sites of oppression while always keeping an eye on the global systems, what Cox called the world systems approach? This is absolutely critical to me, that if we're going to have some form of liberation, it's going to be liberation in a solidarity, a form of coalitional solidarity across multiple lines of, op- of oppression. Okay, now now let's get to your question. Wait, really quick. Yeah. Do you watch SNL? Yes. Um, do you know, I think the one I remember is Tom Hanks, but I think there have been a few of the Black Jeopardy skits where it's like um, Keenan is hosting and Tom Hanks is like a, I mean, a socioeconomically disadvantaged person from right. white person. And it's like there's so many right. things that they agree on. Right. And everybody's like shocked because they thought they knew what the answer was going to be. So anyways, that's what. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the dynamic. Right. And uh, fortunately, we're beginning to pick up on some of these things. Mm -hmm. By the way, there was recently an article in The New York Times called I think it was something like what is what's structural about racism. And not surprisingly, Oliver Cromwell Cox was the central figure in the argument. Um, What I think this indicates in our societies there's greater awareness that if we're going to try to understand race we need to understand political economies um and it's the attempt to divorce the two that have in some sense put us in a corner um so going back to pastor josh's question right so what you have on the left is i would say two kinds of left there's the middle left that's uh populated by figures like the clintons uh like president obama um which really plays up the identity differences. Um, And not surprisingly, especially in the case of uh, Secretary uh, Clinton, right, when she ran against Trump, she decided two things about poor white people. One, um, that they didn't matter morally, and I'm not sure the relationship, but two, they didn't matter politically. They didn't matter morally because they were white. 
And so their oppressions and their poverty, and remember, they are being crushed at this moment by the opioid, opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. And they're being crushed by the lack of access to health care and education in rural communities, as they had been for decades. But she decided that that stuff really didn't matter, um, which is an extraordinary claim for a Democrat. Secondly, she decided they, they didn't politically matter. She didn't need them. Um, she effectively ceded territory to Trump. And what Trump did is then to weaponize uh, their, their their plot in life um, in forms of kind of standing obvious forms of white nationalism. It su he suggested to them the problems, their problems were problems of color. All the while, elites like Trump and Hillary Clinton then could get away scot-free. I mean, that's what was the, the great con job mm -hmm. of Donald Trump was he weaponized what are basic realities of oppression and they turned it into a game of political gamesmanship. Um, and so the left seeded all these folks. And you see this across the board. It's not simply poor white folks, but, you know, Vietnamese folks, uh, Hispanic Latinx communities started going to the right because at least the right seemed to give credence to their life, whereas the left was wound up in a kind of cornered form of identity politics. Now, the far left or some other part of the left, uh, which is, you know, people like Bernie Sanders, AOC, who have very strong environmentalist, social democratic leanings, saw through all this stuff and said, this is absolutely a dead end. Because at the end of the day, we if the only thing we tell white people is that they're white, but they have no other moral significance or bearing in our imagination, then you're going to seed all these people. Uh, you're going to give them the impression that white supremacy is always suggested to them. What matters to them about the, the only thing that matters to them about them is they're, they're white. The fact that they're being oppressed, the fact that some of them are elites, all that will be lost. Yeah, so your question is absolutely a critical question. And the politics of the future will be, as it was shown in the Bernie Sanders election or candidacy, is will we, will we become serious about these questions? Uh, and and that's, that's a difficult question. Um, this is a little bit off topic, uh, but it came to mind, mind earlier. You were talking about the history of DEI work, and you, you named Reagan and Thatcher and um, sort of the, the moral therapeutic work of the individual. Do you ever think about the, um, at least in my mind, simultaneous development with an evangelicalism of individual identity and um, kind of movement away from Israel's corporate identity and even the church's corporate identity? And do you think there's a relationship? Yeah, and this will allow us to turn then what, to what I take to be some of the possible ways forward. Yeah, and I think your question is such a good question. You're just not sure how to narrate it. Is it the fact that the kind of Reaganitism, individualism, rugged individualism of kind of neoliberal capitalism, did that produce the evangelical individualism or was it the other way around? Did the evangelicalism produce uh, and make easier the path to neoliberalism? Uh, that that I don't know, and you know, smarter folks will have be able to figure some of that out. Uh, but yeah, th that's absolutely part of the the story here. And and re and remember, the individualism isn't something that's just running through Protestant evangelicalism, but it's also affecting deeply the Roman Catholic Church at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so you have a brand of religion that is uh, amazingly abstract and vague and devoid of material commitments. Um, one of the things I try to do in the book is to say that Christianity and the church, as in local churches like University Baptist Church, really matter in this story. 
Um, and they can matter in ways that produce really positive, powerful outcomes, and or they can contribute to the problem. My attempt to say that it could go either way is in some ways to push against certain academic trends that say it can only go badly for the church. Uh, and the idea there is that it can only go badly because it has only gone badly. Um, and so in this story, Christianity can only be a villain in the story. Uh, I want to tell a story where it could actually go both ways. And I tell that by two brands of Asian American Christianity. One, uh, where Asian Americans participate in forms of racial capitalism by exploiting black neighbors, um, where what the Christianity does isn't so much give them theological reasons for being racist, as much as to say they didn't need many reasons because the racial capitalist ones were sufficient. So what the church failed to do was to do anything. It, It effectively said how people deal with their money in relationship to their neighbors with none of the business of the church. And so, and this operated because you had such a vague brand of Christianity. So when I interviewed people who grew up in these communities, and this community stretched back to the 19th century, they just can't remember. It's not simply that they don't remember um, their churches ever talking about like why black people are bad. It's that they never remember talking about race at all. They never talked about it. And even in the 1960s, when civil rights was cutting across the country, they don't remember one single sermon where they talked about race or anything. Uh, The idea was that Christianity was a rubber stamp to whatever political economy you were already participating in. And if it was American racial capitalism, all the better. So that's where I say, that's where I should try to show that the Christianity just doesn't help. It doesn't help these folks. Anything else occur to these folks. The second story I tell is is of another Asian American community in what's called Black San Francisco, the Bayview Hunters Point part of San Francisco, the most marginalized city, part of the city, uh, the site of uh, extraordinary forms of racial, um, environmental racism, and about an Asian American community of Christians invited um, by black churches in the area to come and live as neighbors. And the way that these folks, because the Christianity isn't vague, it has very practical commitments, like Jesus says to the rich young ruler, yeah, you ought to go sell your stuff. Um, and then you can come follow me. And so what you have is a bunch of Asian American Christians whose racial capitalist um, advantages benefited for them, benefited them in ways that they could go to schools like Stanford and Cal, Berkeley. Uh, learning about Jesus and Jesus being on the side of the oppressed and then calling these folks to go and live likewise uh, and finding the greatest forms of joy in communities and neighborhoods that were abandoned by the rest of the city, understanding their life with black and brown people and poor yellow folks, um, right? Not as a kind of white savior mentality, but as a form of repentance, as a form of dispossession. Uh, and to me, this what's amazing about this church isn't that it's novel. What's amazing to me is that this is what the church is always called to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we can say that the the realities of racism and its racial capitalist forms of domination and extraordinary forms of death dealing inequality is at the fault, right? It comes to the feet of the church, to the door of the church, because the church hasn't offered anything else. And what these folks are trying to do is they're trying to offer something else. It's really beautiful. Yeah. I do think it reminds, and like, um, 
you know, I grew up in a very sort of American Southern evangelical church, and there are still things that formed me there that are very important to me. And I do think it's one of those cheesy things that something like that our Christianity calls like all every part of our lives. Do you know what I mean? And like that, I, I'm trying to remember of how they would have said it. But like, you know, the meaning sort of was like throw away your CDs or whatever. But the way that throughout the course of my life it has formed me is like, it matters what we do with our money. It matters how we live. It matters where we live. It matters how we treat our neighbor in practical ways. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah. I think that's a very beautiful example of that. One of the convictions I had in writing the book is I looked around at all my friends who are anti-racist activists and um, academics, and you just realize that the work we have in front of us, if it's as titanic as the black Marxists helped us to see it is, uh, then you're going to need forms of life that are sustainable over time. Right. And one of the things I came to believe is that the language of resistance wasn't going to be that. Uh, rather, we need a bigger story. And I think Christianity offers at least one version of that story. Right? Right. The primary key of Christian theology isn't resistance. It's proclamation. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, it's saying that God wins, that justice wins, right? That justice is going to pour forth not simply in societies but in rivers <laughs> and right. lands yeah. it's going to course through the blood of creation and so what you have with christians and specifically this community that i study is they're they're not making stuff up they're leaning into a tradition of yeah. liberation um, and so they don't have to quote save the world they simply have to lean into what christ has done in saving the world yeah. um and so what i you know, as one of the things I say in the book is that justice and mercy are natural to the world because they're natural to God, and this is God's world. I think one of the things that I found most beautiful about this community is that when you ask them about what they do, and, and some, some of the things they do just to give your listeners a sense, is that these these are people who are trained at UCLA, Berkeley, Stanford as computer scientists, electrical engineers, all the kind of stereotypes of model minority Asian Americans. Um, and they decide to give up the advantages by giving up jobs in Silicon Valley and all those all the, all the wealth and prestige that comes with that. Mm-hmm. But they still had their skills as electrical engineers and computer scientists. Mm-hmm. So they compu- they started a software company, like okay. a for-profit software company that uses its monies then to redistribute income to the city, to these neighborhoods, to local businesses. I mean, there's this really powerful story that during COVID, all the local restaurants are being crushed because, of course, people aren't going to them. Mm-hmm. So what this company did with some of their money is they started buying gift cards, tons and tons of gift cards from these local restaurants, not expecting them to provide. You know, they weren't going to redeem the gift cards. They just wanted to inject money into the local businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a, a, a micro loan outfit where they give loans because why loans given at the local level, not by kind of multinational creditors but by folks in your community have much better possibilities for success mm-hmm. and so and then the biggest thing they've done with all this redistributed money is they started a school because san francisco has really like almost every city in our country uh has really unjust and broken educational systems mm-hmm. so they they started a private school right private schools cost in the city of san francisco 35 to forty-five thousand dollars a year they created a high-level private school that you that has the standards of the University of California um, admissions uh, as their benchmark for what kind of education they're going to give these kids. In other words, very high quality education, effectively for free um, mm-hmm. for kids in this community. So they do all this amazing stuff. But mm-hmm. here's the here's to me is the the rub. 
when you ask them about why they do this stuff, never do you hear them say, oh, we're social justice crusaders, we're community activists, et cetera, et cetera. I love those folks, but they, these church folks don't describe themselves this way. They, they say they do it because they love their community and they love God. Uh, and it just seems to be what you do if you live within a certain liturgy, if you sing certain kinds of songs, if you read the scripture in a certain kind of way. Uh, what I realize about these folks is that at the heart of everything you do is the community life that they think the Spirit has made possible. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to miss out, right? And so they would never describe themselves as superheroes. I think they are. I think a lot of people would think they are. They would describe themselves as really ordinary Christians who, you know, in the language of one of the people I interviewed, has allowed the litany to wash over her in a way that makes the world seem obviously um, on the side of God's justice. Right. That's amazing. Yeah, these people are amazing folks. <laughs> I, I want to ask one question, and it's going to sound like, gotcha, I don't intend for it to be a, all that way. Um, it sounds to me, and I'm sure you've thought about this, that the way they're able to do a lot of this meaningful work, though, is at least in, in part of the story is participate in the system of capitalism to take advantage of the advantages that it can offer and then basically tax themselves and create a more socialist society, right? Yeah, um, right. Is that just the inevitable reality of how we have to navigate this until there can be uh, political economic changes? Or, um, or, you know, well, I'll pause there and see what you have to say. Yeah, I mean, some, one version of reading them is, well, of course these people can do it they, because, because they can do it, right? They already have the wealth and the education. And so am I telling the story of only people um, are already advantaged? Well, I mean— the fact is that the church in the West and the North is extraordinarily advantaged. In other words, their story is our story. Mm -hmm. uh, does that um, in some ways um, deflate the value of what they're doing? I don't know. Uh, I think that's a good observation. It's clearly the case, right? You're, when you're educated at Stanford, you're educated at Stanford. Your family can afford to send, say, four of your kids to Stanford. Um, so, but that, I don't know if that itself is a disqualifier because, you know, what you have not only in Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, but throughout the tradition of Christianity and theological reflection is really powerful, wealthy people being called by Jesus to divest themselves of wealth and power. Mm -hmm. I don't think it should disqualify their story because they start out in a certain place. Sure. I think it's saying that the story of Christianity, I mean, I, this is one of the great things about Christianity. I, I, as you both know, I was raised outside the church. So I just think Christianity is like, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. Um <laughs> is that Christianity says that uh, at the end of the day, the one ace up the sleeve of the church or Christians is you can always give it up. You can always die. Um, you can always dispossess. Why? Because what cross and resurrection means is dispossessing yourself of advantages, of benefits, of life. Doesn't mean you lose. We live in a non-zero-sum story because resurrection says that God has given us a way out. Um, I just was thinking about this the other day about the practice that God gives Christian communities of asking for forgiveness. What an extraordinary tool that at any moment when you make a mistake, and you'll make plenty of them if you're in intimate relationships with any human being, God gives you the advantage of dispossessing yourself and saying, I'm sorry, I wronged you. Um, and God gives us forgiveness. I think there's similar things. We're never boxed in in our history. The, the, the great deadly evil and idolatry about racial capitalism is it is a zero-sum form of thinking, right? Um, Heather McGee wrote this amazing book last year called um, The Sum of Us, 
where she showed that that's largely what's driving the white mindset. She wanted to know why do white people consistently vote against their own interests by voting against social programs? One, they think that social programs are simply about black people, even though by aggregate numbers, it clearly benefits massive amounts of white people, much more than any other people group in our country. And secondly, they have it ingrained in their mind as part of the white racialization that they've been subjected to, that to give anything to black people is, in a sense, to take something from white people. Right. Um, that's zero something, and that's the deadly thinking of race thinking. Is that it? Ten- it teaches you to pit yourself against others. Well, Christianity is it's the opposite. It's the divine economy. It's saying that it's all grace. Our very existence is grace, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, it's the opposite of a zero-sum analysis. What we have is we can always dispossess. We can always give up because we know in doing so that we'll still be taken care of. I, yes, I, that's, that, these are things I've been thinking about so frequently lately. And I think, of course, the most common like metaphor for uh, that sort of sort of white racialized thinking is like people talk about a pie, like that white people tend to think that um, if you know, it's like if I have a whole pie and then you get something, you've taken some of my pie and I have less pie, but that's not really at all what's going on, certainly. Like, uh, I don't know that there is a good metaphor for what, um, for what is what actually happens, which is that everybody benefits except for maybe like the ocean, except the ocean also is, right. um, certainly endable. Um, but I have also been thinking so much, and this is interesting when you were talking about that community and the fact that they, you know, start with wealth and that that's a hard thing, uh, the, or that is just a, a reality of what happens, which is that it's like, um, you know, I think I spent so long in seminary and here at UBC, which is a very free place, you know, a place where we are, uh, we grant each other a lot of freedoms to kind of just be who we are and how we are and process those things. And there have been times when it feels like um, we don't ask anything of our community. But I have been thinking a lot about um, uh, the reality that I think discipleship circles back around to thinking about sort of like personal responsibility in a way that is like integrated into the life of the community. Do you know what I mean? And how we are called, there are specific things that we are called to do. And I think those are mostly community things, but also we do live in this society of individual responsibility. And I think that's the key of like leaning back into thinking about how do I treat the people around me and Mm. how do I treat my neighbor and how do I live this life where the reality is I've already won. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have to think about whether or not I'm going to lose because, well, first of all, if Jesus is our example, then like Jesus definitely lost, um, except for at the end. But um, do you know what I mean? But if that's the example of how to live a life, then like that's how we should be living. And also like um, that even if we do lose, the reality is we've already won because of the economy of grace that God has given us. So, yeah, I mean, this goes back to... um part of the force of Pastor Josh's early question, which is, do I talk about, in in talking about this church, do I leave standing the larger neoliberal capitalism? Uh, Certainly you can imagine some of my more socialist Marxist friends think I could have gone much further in the book Mm -hmm. uh, because at at the end of the day, I do talk about a for-profit business. Um, I happen to believe that for-profit industry can accrue, can have amazingly positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, 
uh, the market is a is a function of communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're not saying let's just divest ourselves of markets. We're saying let's have better markets, <laughs> yeah. not simply more just, but more efficient um, systems where profit accrues to a very, very tiny percent of the population are inefficient systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but could I go further? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't deal with in the constructive argument in my book what states need to be doing. Um, what nationalities need to be doing, what multinationalities need to be doing. I focus specifically on the kind of practical local church. That doesn't mean I don't think we need to be doing these things. You brought up, Pastor, earlier the question of reparations. Reparations is a no-brainer to me. Mm-hmm. The question about reparations isn't whether, it's how. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have an entire economy built on the backs of black Americans, how do you begin to figure out how to pay folks back what you stole them mm-hmm. when you live on land stolen from the Hueco, right? Um, mm-hmm. Communities that lived here long before we did. How do you even begin to think about this? But yeah, of course, reparations. But I try to focus specifically on local communities and churches and their responsibilities within this larger frame. I, what my hope is, as they invest, as they participate in these local communities, it will make them aware of what we also need at the state and national level. Mm-hmm. I think those are mutually informing processes. Um, I think one of the great things about what the church is, is at the end of the day, it's saying you have individual responsibilities and those individual responsibilities are tied to communities. Mm -hmm. It's not up to any one of us. If it was simply up to my family's economics, which is certainly to be held accountable, uh, then I couldn't do it. If I I can do it, if I'm part of a community of people uh, who are doing this together, because they're the reminder that even if you feel like, right, that's what you're saying, Pastor Taylor, even if you feel like you're losing it's the community that reminds you to say just by the worship songs yeah. um, Jamie leads on Sunday that we're not losing, right? Yeah. One of his songs is this stuff is just built into creation. Creation is not simply groaning on these things. It's praising mm-hmm. uh, God in these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to be mindful of our time. We're approaching an hour. I did want to ask one last question. This may be an esoteric way to get to the, to the question. So if it seems unhelpful, just answer what you think is the... Um, you mentioned earlier that you really... Um, that uh, it, well, race maybe wasn't solely invented in America, but it was at a time for a specific purpose to pit people against one another. Um, when I think about the specific atrocities of chattel slavery, um, part of the way I get clarity is to do historical work and understand slavery in the Roman Empire and how different it was. So I think what I'm trying to ask is, but that still existed in the Roman Empire, even if it looked very different. Um, is it fair to say, have you thought about that the ultimate boogeyman is is classism, um, or is that um, is that too nuanced and unhelpful to try and pit even racism and classism against each other? Yeah, this is one of the great philosophical questions coming out of, of my book, uh, the Black Marxist critique of traditional Marxism. Um, is am I saying that class is the driver here? Um, I tried. I'm agnostic about the ontological relationship between the various features. I'd rather like to say that they are co-emerging principles. So if you see, if you look at American chattel slavery, they are absolutely co-emerging principles. Racism and capitalism are born in the same seabed of realities. So let me give you an example. Accountancy, right? What, what many of us would be considered a, a rather innocuous practice. And even more innocuous, more mundane is the accountant's ledger. Now, many people don't know this, but the ledger was developed by slave owners, Right. The ledger, as we know, in America was developed by Sears, was shipped, shopped out by Sears Roebuck catalogs 
for slave owners and plantation owners so that they can keep track of the productivity of their slaves. That's the bedrock of American accountancy. The same thing with finance capital, the speculation of, uh, say, homes. Many of us have mortgages and second mortgages in our home. That speculation was developed uh, on slaves. A lot of people couldn't afford to outright buy an enslaved person, so they took out a mortgage on an enslaved person. And then sometimes they would take out second mortgages on future productivity of slaves. Uh, and what you had was a system where you had to continuously justify your what you're doing while being amazingly productive while doing it. And this led to untold forms of cruelty, as if the cruelty justified the system. And the system required the cruelty because you need to make good on your loans. I mean, Edward Baptist, the author of The Other Half Has Never Been Told, and a number of author, uh, historians, which, which is often referred to as the new historians of capitalists, have shown us all the documentary material evidence these are co-emerging principles. Geraldine Hang, a, 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 a literary scholar over here at the University of Texas, wrote a book about the history of race as a category in the Catholic Church. And what she showed is that it was a co-emerging principle around anti-Semitism and Jewish life tied to who could own property. Um, and then my good friend Tony Alamey just defended a brilliant dissertation at Princeton University um, on the very question you just talked about, Roman slavery. And it's ties, of course, to the political economic reality of the Roman Empire. Certainly notions of culture and, uh, are part of this, notions of race, notions of biological difference and differentiation, um, but they are tied together. Um, and the mistake is to separate them. This is where the term racial capitalism came from. The great thinker Cedric Robinson, he noticed that the first instances of the use of the category of race was it among, say, white people in relationship to black or brown people? It was among white people in relationship to white people, or what we now call white people. That is, the English landed elite made up categories about people they called the, you know, we now call the Slavs, notice the language, similarity to slaves, as well as the Irish. These people were racially inferior, which of course then justified the systems of exploitation in places like London and Manchester. Um, and what Robinson said, uh, what this observation allowed Robinson to do is to step back, right, and get behind the curtain of how racism actually works. The creation of race fictions to justify what are essentially labor and capital distinctions. That's what I mean. So you say to a black person, it's because you're black. And then this is Du Bois, right? Du Bois says, then the, what the, then what the white person gets is what he called the psychological wage. Poor white person, you're being oppressed too but you get the psychological wage, you're white. Uh, that should make you feel better. Notice what gets again, gets away again, scot-free, is the oppressors. Um, now white people and black people are at each other's throats, uh, and then they're equally and together against, uh, uh, against the throats of Chinese laborers. All the while, you have a system that goes on scot-free, accruing benefit to the wealthy. Well, Dr. Jonathan Tran, this has been very uh, fruitful for us as listeners. I hope that um, it was uh, helpful for you um, getting to do a long-form interview like this, and hopefully you feel like you got a lot of time to answer questions. Uh, we so appreciate you, and um, not just the, the contribution that the book makes to this discussion, but I think as somebody, or well, both of us as pastors, just your care for church mm -hmm. and your hope for church is um, invigorating and, and edifying for us to hear, and I think injects a kind of hope into what we want to do. Thanks for having me on.
Taylor. Gosh. Oh, you beat me. <laughs> you beat me. That was so great. I love that you did that. <laughs> okay. You were eyeing me up. You were, <laughs> how long you've been planning that? So like it happened in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a occasion for joy. Taylor, it is time for a word from our sponsor. Guess yes. who that is this week? Um, I don't know, but Revival I, Eastside Eatery. Yes, we revival. were just talking about East Waco. Yes, we were. So that's uh, maybe prudent that the stars aligned that they were our sponsor this week. Oh, yeah. Taylor, one time when we were um, under some kind of hardship, I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't a kid that we just had, but people were bringing us meals. Uh-huh. Oh, I think it was like new foster kids as well. Okay. It was. Yeah. Somebody brought us a like meal from East Side Revivalry, Revival uh-huh. that you heated up in the oven. It was a meatloaf, potatoes, and some other things. That oh sounds gosh. delicious. It was so good. Yeah. It was so good. Wow. Do you do you ever been there for a sit down and meal? Like to the restaurant? Yeah. Yes. I was going to say one time they had a special burger and it had hoisin sauce and cucumbers. Ooh. And for some reason, I just had this moment. Brie and Kathleen make fun of me truly all the time where because we were there together where i just was like going on and on about the cucumbers like okay. something about they, they really marinated the moment lot. was like they were so good yeah and i think about it all the time well it's it's funny uh the funny like things that can really change a uh, culinary experience like that yeah like a, a hint of a flavor Lindsay made these pork tacos the other night uh-huh and we've had pork all kinds of things including tacos right but for some reason the way they called for us to to pickle the onions. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was so good. It made all the difference. Pickled red onions, I feel like, are really having a moment culturally. Oh, good. They're so good, though. Yeah. Well, friends, we would love for you to have the best pickled cucumbers, pickled everything over at um, East Revival East Side Eatery. Yeah, so you good. You can find them at 704 Ellum Avenue. Uh, you can call them at 254-339-1401. Hey, our number is 752-1401 here. Is that yeah. predestined before the foundations of the earth? Maybe. Certainly. Or probably the most practical thing would do is for you to get on the internet and look them up at RevivalEastsideEatery.com. Check out yeah. the menu. So good. Plan your trip and have a riveting culinary experience at one of, I think, the most competitive, best-tasting restaurants in Waco. Ooh. Not overdone. That's a true statement. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Revival Eastside Eatery, for your sponsorship this week. Yeah. And we're back. We're back. With the other part of the show on the back end of the show. Wait, so should we do this all backwards? Like we just should did. Should we do the quiz right away? Yeah, do the quiz Let's right do the away. quiz right away. Okay, great. Okay, great. So here's the quiz. All right. It's for you this week. This is symmetrical the other way. Yeah. What is that word you learn about? Um, there's like, you know, I'm getting lost in my own thoughts, sorry. Okay. I'm thinking of math class in seventh grade. Oh. The different kinds of symmetry. Okay, this is, oh, this, the title of this quiz is, I'm willing to bet all my stocking stuffers this year that you won't be able to finish this Christmas music test. Oh, I don't uh, doubt. I never memorized a lyric in my life. <laughs> okay, these are all Christmas. I might fail all of them. These are all Christmas lyrics. No, I think you'll do better than you think you will. All I want for Christmas is. Two front teeth. Okay, there's. Or you. Yes, there's options. One of them is you. Okay. Okay, great. That was the right answer. Mariah Carey, we heard from her at the beginning of the program. You're all that I need underneath the... Mistletoe. Pine tree, tree, Christmas tree, tree this year. Pine tree. I think it's tree this year. Tree this year. It Underneath the tree. Yeah. It doesn't tell me. Oh, just tree. Yeah, just right. tree. Santa, tell me if you're... The one I need. Really? <laughs> Really? Are you just making? Yeah, I have no idea. Santa, tell me you're the one who came down my chimney last. Really night. real? 
really there, actually there, or actually there. Those are the same. Uh, really real. Really real. It's oh, you know that song, Santa. Tell me if you're really there. So it's really there. Yeah. No. Last Christmas, I gave you my two front teeth. No, you know. The oh, answer. last Christmas, oh. I gave you my heart. The very next day, you gave you know what I'm just. <laughs> yeah. I had this this image of uh, the, some professor of whatever in um, you know religion at Princeton or uh-huh. and then like they have this on their card because it's Dr. Train who's very respectable and uh-huh. then poor them they can't figure out how to turn off their iPad <laughs> their iPod and it's this. Yeah, it's this. It's good for them though. I would love it. We, we represent where people live. Yeah. Yeah. On the first day of Christmas. My true love came to me. Okay, it's not the word came, but it is a word that has many letters similarly. Oh, that wasn't right? No, my true love. And then think about what that word would be. It's not came to me. It's. I don't know. I've always been saying the wrong lyrics my whole life. (laughs) My true love gave to me. Really? Yeah. I saw a thing the other day that said, um, I was this, I was today years old when I learned it wasn't three calling birds which i thought it was it's what like it? three whatever birds uh we're not at my house with any alexa oh yeah say. the first day christmas four is it four calling birds three uh, french hands four calling i was today years old when four I calling birds it is calling birds i don't care some people are snooty about things have yourself a merry little christmas yeah yeah Look, you got it. He's already checked out because he thinks he's bad at it. No, I'm um, I'm trying to look up the calling birds. Oh, okay. It's the most... Wonderful time of year. Yeah. Oh, wait. It's already over. Oh, I wouldn't be able to get those? That was the tough quiz? Yeah, I guess. That was fun. It, uh, you scored better than 33% of other people. That's not very high. Holly Jolly Spirit Activated. You're basically in holiday mode 24-7, 365 days a year. That's true. That is true. You wait all year to play Christmas music and someday, sometimes start a bit early in July. Not July. I've actually gotten disciplined. Mostly I just have too many kids to realize what time of the year it is. But um, <laughs> Too many kids? I feel like kids would make you realize what time of the oh, year Taylor, it is. Taylor, like, we don't even have our Christmas cards addressed. Oh, I don't take Christmas cards. We never did Christmas cards. Maybe somebody. Here's another one about Christmas music. Do you want to? Let's take a look at it. The Christmas number one spot is the most coveted chart position of the year. But which of these festive favorites was never a Christmas number one in the. Oh, it's about Ireland. (laughs) In the Irish single chart. Okay, I don't think I'll get this. But, uh, rubbish, the drunken Christmas elf or something. I uh, nailed it. There's options: fairy tale of New York. Okay. All I want for Christmas is you. Okay. Do they know it's Christmas? Yeah. And Merry Christmas, everybody. Um, I'm gonna say all I want for Christmas is you. I want to go with Mariah Carey. She's yeah. number one in the world. Oh no, sorry. So the question is like, which song was it not? Oh, uh, I, I don't know. Me neither. Uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah, that's what my guess is going to be. Okay, great. I don't want to play the Irish quiz. Okay, great. Then we won't. But So that's our quiz for today. Sorry. 
I just it was complicated. No, no. I think our first quiz was good, but then I tried the Irish quiz, and that was weird. Well, uh, I'll tell you this. I did uh, Wikipedia was the extent of my research, but it does say calling birds, which made me think. Calling birds. Did somebody? Um, Wait, what did you, what did they think it was? I'll have to find the tweet. Okay. Call callery birds. Caller, I don't know. Okay. Some word that was like okay, whatever. Oh, like I think I've seen this. Like maybe like collie or something. Yeah. Yes. Collie birds. Yeah, and um, you know what made me wonder like. Do people just make up stuff like that on Twitter to get traction? I think some people do, yeah. That's a great idea because, like, I'll slow down and read them. Like, I always thought I was calling birds. What? And then I'm enthralled. <laughs> or I've thought about just as an experiment. You know how those um, people do those things? Only 3% of the population can get this right, and then it's, like, kind of easy. Yeah. But I always get, like, what? No. I'm not. I'm smart enough. I'm smart. I'll I'm, do it. I'm 3% of the population. <laughs> and it's, like pretty easy i yeah. thought about just creating a bunch of those or like you know how you can like they add up things and then it's like this is the sum total and there's a question mark and you have to figure out what the pattern is uh-huh. just creating those just to yeah. get the traction um Let's i'm surprised you hadn't thought of this already because it's the equivalent of like hey we're giving out a uh porsche at church tomorrow i'm gonna create some of my handwriting though <laughs> okay i've never said we're giving away a porsche at church no, what have you said? I couldn't think of a crossbow. Yeah, crossbow, poison dart arrows, cars. A Listener, at the beginning of the year, we have this church fair for freshmen to orient them to the church possibilities in their life. All these churches get tables. And I have been kicked out of representing UBC <laughs> because I lied to students too often about what we would do at church if they came. Well, I think the thing, it's not the lie as much as the, like, you just, like, refuse to... Like when someone's like, he's joking. You're like, no, we are giving away a crossbow. Yeah. Well, it's good for people. The double down. Yeah. They need to know what type of place this is. They need to know. It's a type of place where the best might like your face. <laughs> okay. uh, you know what? It, all, all different kinds. Well, all Taylor. All kinds of kinds. Yeah. I'm going to plug. Oh, I'm getting a, a phone call from my sister-in-law. Should yeah. I take it? Sure. Hello? I think oh. I, got, I got butt dialed. It's, yeah, it's butt dialed. All right. Well, she's off the hook. She didn't want to be on the air anyways. Um, <laughs> she was asking me about Christmas presents for the kids. Oh, I it's love her, that. Their sweet aunt taking care of them. Um, hey, so uh, you know how we used to read reviews that people would give us? Yeah. We haven't done that in a while because we haven't been getting any. Yeah. So listener, if you're a first-time listener, leave us, leave us a review. That's leave how we get famous you. and rich. But um, I did get a phone call from Marshall Cook yesterday. Oh, great. And Marshall... Um, I he, love Marshall. He began the conversation, not with, hi, how are you doing? And he's like, I just have to tell you how much I love and look forward to the podcast each week. Oh. Which lifted my spirits to the heavens. Yeah. So uh, thank you, Marshall. for Marshall. Listening. I feel like we have a, a base of consistent listeners. I do. Yes, I do. We have a few super fans. Some people that like text us regularly. Yeah. I laughed so hard. When Kathy texted us this week. Well, I just, I don't, because I feel like all of her texts are pro-Taylor somehow. <laughs> Taylor is so funny, or Ta- I agree with Taylor, or Taylor did this, or, and like, okay, me we and get Ka- it. Me and Kathy cry, I think, see eye to eye on many things. Yeah, well. But that was funny. That was a funny joke. I don't always plan jokes ahead of time, but. Remind me what the thing she thought was funny was. Um. Well, she said it was, <laughs> you were talking about how all oh, of a sudden that. everybody's in love with 
Um, what no, which song is it? it uh, Weary Midnight or Midwinter Midwinters. Or in the bleak midwinter. In the bleak midwinter. And that, and then you asked me what my favorite Christmas song was. Yeah. And I said in. That was a good one. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, Taylor. So, Marshall Cook, thanks for listening. Yeah, Marshall, thanks. We appreciate you. Hey, guess what I uh, watched last night? What'd you watch? Home Sweet Home Alone. Okay, yes. I want to know all about this. Or as I am um, calling it, Home Alone Part 5. Okay. Because I know there's a 3. I thought there was a 4, too. But maybe there's just 3. No, yeah. I think it's 4. I don't think there is. Oh, so it's Home Alone Part 4. Yeah. Well, it's... um, Tell me about it, because the 5th and 6th graders... We're like, they've convinced me. Everyone hates it. Well, you know what's funny is last night it was me, Kareem, Mabel, Wendell. Okay. I'm like, okay, guys, we can pick a movie. Uh-huh. And so I went through our Christmas movies and like, okay, these are the ones that both groups could get into. Uh-huh. And then I said, oh, what about the new Home Alone at Disney? And Mabel's like, no. <gasps> and I'm like, oh, did you see it? She's like, no. Well, okay. like, why then? Right. Okay. So but I, she is part of that group. Yeah. Well, so. I played a trick on her. Oh, you did? Is And I said, um. Well, let's just watch it for 23 minutes, and then if you don't like it, we'll turn it off. Well, you get any kid at 23 minutes in, they're invested. Yeah, yeah. I so um, I, I don't feel like I'm going to ruin anything because it, you can guess what the plot is. Right, yeah. A kid's home alone in a house, and some people try and break in, and there's booby traps, right? Right, yeah. So, But there was some very clever um, things done. Okay. I'll tell you about a few of them. Number one, I, I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10 on the um, cast. Okay. So it's Ellie Kemper. <gasps> oh, my gosh. And Rob Dulaney are the married couple. Oh my gosh! And um, the the storyline is. Wait, remind me which Rob is Rob. Rob Delaney, Delaney was in Catastrophe. I don't know if you ever saw that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's his most famous thing. He's he's I think a wonderful human being. Uh, I'm gonna is, okay. I'm gonna look him up. This is a big downer. Um, he lost his little boy to cancer. Oh. Um, no, and I found a very beautiful interview he gave after that. So sad. Uh, but and and the only reason because like he was filming. Like season four catastrophe and like in pain because this was happening in his life. But anyhow. Um, okay. I know this guy. Catastrophe is four seasons. It's uh-huh. such a great show. It's a big recommendation for me. Okay. But I really like him. Yeah. Then um, Keenan, no, Keenan Thompson. Keenan? Yeah. SNL? Yeah. He's in it? Uh-huh. Not a okay. huge role. And then do you, did you ever watch Veep? With Julie Lee. Oh, I didn't, but I've heard of it for sure. So there's a guy in that that he's pretty famous from that show named Jonah in the show. He's the brother of Rob Delaney. Uh-huh. Um, this is the coolest thing, though. So the house in question at some point, this is a spoiler, so plug your ears if you don't know. Doesn't uh-huh. not, the, not the plot, but just a person in the show. Okay. They, they call, the alarm calls the police to come. Uh-huh. The officer gets out. Uh-huh. You see the name tag, uh-huh. and it's McAllister. Oh, yeah. No, I remember this. And it's Buzz. It's Buzz. It's the real life Buzz. And he, like, is playing Buzz McAllister. Oh, my gosh. So it's, like, um, not just a, like, subtle nod. It's explicit. Right. And he, like, he's, like, nobody's left home alone. That's my brother calling him. We left him home alone twice when I was a kid. <laughs> like, he's just, he's, you know, calling in to the police department to prank me. Don't worry about it. Sure, yeah. But anyhow, that was clever, I thought. Yeah, And that's then there's cool. this other great line where they're watching... Um, so you know the scene where um, whatever you filthy animals from the old movie, uh-huh. it's on TV, but it's like a remake, like a different character. Oh, it's like a, they've cast it again. Yeah, and then the either I think it's the uncle is sitting on the couch. He's like, 
uh, remakes are never as good as the originals. Why do people do that? I just like that's so clever. So like self-referentially um, yeah. deprecatory. Yeah. I thought that was good. Um, the other thing about this is, and this is a again a spoiler, is there is the booby trap stuff, but then it, so it's it's the couple Rob Delaney and Ellie Kemper breaking into this kid's house because they think he stole a doll oh. that they um, they need that they had in their house it's worth like two hundred thousand dollars and they have to sell the house that they're in because and it's hard and it's emotional so they're trying to get this doll back right and um they like there's like this epiphany moment at the end where everybody's like oh the kid's like you weren't trying to steal me you're trying to steal this doll and they're like oh we didn't know you were home alone right and it's very tender and then she like moms them mm-hmm. and i wonder if that's like a kind of a, a social consciousness evolution thing like it, we really can't have this kid neglected and celebrate this you know yeah like we need to confront the fact that it's very damaging could be for people that he was left home alone. Yeah, and for him it could yeah. be traumatic and Yeah. Um yeah, that's a very different take than like sort of just like championing like yeah. you made it and you did it and you were home alone but everything's fine. Yeah. Um it's a different take. I guess yeah. I um I don't know if it was cuz I had already seen Home Alone 1 and 2. I just I think part of the settings of those movies are so magical. Yes. Well, the McAllister house is like yes, so beautiful. Yes. Um, I and mean, to be honest, we must like admit that it looks a lot like your house. Well, you said that, not me. Okay. And um, no, we, our house gets called the Home Alone house a lot. Yeah, but that it is just like a, a sort of Colonial quintessential yeah. American, and like especially, I think. Looks very beautifully decorated at Christmas time, yeah. like the snow, the snow, Chicago, yeah, all, yeah, all of that, and then New York, and thing. then New York, which is like an especially magical right. place at Christmas. But I think one of the things that surprised me about Home Alone Two is that they they pulled off all the the traps again. It was funny again, right? And I don't think this movie quite had that. Maybe it's because I saw it the first time when I was forty, right. as opposed to right. But uh, but I also had kind of low expectations, so I yeah, took it for what it was and appreciated it. Okay, I do think there is something to be said about um, sort of a cultural understanding of like pain and violence that has changed. Well, I did also notice that some of the things are toned down. Okay, they're not quite as. No. I mean, right? Because you watch those things from the first and second movie, and it's like, oh, they'd be dead right away. Y- yeah, with like one of those things, yes. and uh, so I guess there's also the bricks to the head. Right. Well, like at one point, one of them is like electrocuted in such a way that you can see their skeleton. Yeah. <laughs> Which I know is, I think it's a sense of like um, being able to hold, uh, what am I, hold reality in a li- like lighter way. Yeah. That now is kind of like, no. Right. No, reality is reality or something like that. I don't quite know. I will say I appreciated the attempt, though, with the booby traps. Okay, good. There, there's still some good. Yeah. We wa- Yeah, so we watched Home Alone 2 this week at the 5th and 6th grade Christmas yeah, party. it's a great one. And we really only got to, like, the middle, so we didn't see any of the booby trap parts. Oh, well, that's The safer. kids did not seem to care. Yeah. They were very invested in their... Um, Oh, I saw Gingerbread the, the girls were really crushing the boys in the oh, are they? online voting. Yeah. I haven't. It's. I need to. I probably just put Facebook on my phone again for a minute because I can't go. You can go on your computer. Check. I know, but it still makes it hard. to. I'm yeah. not on my computer 
I don't. I'm not thinking about it on my computer. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So, we'll we'll see. They were so cute. The girls. I think they were especially <laughs> um, cognizant of like um, mass appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they knew it was going to be like voted. I told them you, at the beginning, yeah, like the, I'm going to put this online. There's some Enneagram three energy, right? They, yeah, they knew they were going to be watched. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I got to respect that. Well, Taylor, um, guess what? What? Guess what happened yesterday? What? News broke that Baylor is now an R1 university. Yes. Research one. Yes. That's true. It's been a goal of Baylor's for a very long time. I um, I have one thought about this. Okay. So I saw this news, uh-huh. and I'm like, I've been talking about this for years, but I really don't even know what it means to be R1 or who is R1. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So I Googled list of R1 universities. Uh-huh. And what I expected was it for it to be the Ivy League. I expected Stanford, Cal Berkeley, Duke, you know, yeah. Rice, um, probably like the UT system, like UT, Texas. Right. I expected, you know, Michigan. And Corpus Christi, UT Corpus Christi has like a very large marine biology. Well, well let me get there. Okay. So I'm looking at these names. But then all of a sudden this list is like very large. Uh-huh. And I guess not large if you like put every college and university in America on there. Like how, like, if you had to guess, how many schools? Hundred and fifty. Okay, so large but not gigantic. Like it, that does seem one hundred and fifty. So like pretty much every school though in the Big Twelve was already in our one university. Okay. Um, and then like even more surprising to me, like a lot of the Texas Extension schools were. Yeah, so I well, expected Austin to be on there, right? But like Dallas, Arlington. Well, I actually feel El Paso, it's, it's San interesting. Antonio. I haven't thought about it, but I actually feel like a lot of the UT extension schools sort of were started in particular in like a particular area. So like the Corpus Christi schools by the beach. Yeah, and a lot of it was like is, um, like, uh. Like, they have an extensive marine biology program, which you can only have by the beach, and you can't have in Austin, Texas. You know what I mean? Yes. I think what my point was, one, seeing some of those schools on there made me think, oh, this isn't such a big deal. In fact, it's kind of embarrassing that we weren't already (laughs) Tier 1. Yeah. Okay, now I'm looking at Tier 1. That's different than R1. Oh. Okay, hold on. Maybe it's different. But... When I saw some of these other schools, like I would have thought that Baylor was more prestigious than all those UT schools. Yeah. Wouldn't you? Yeah. But I think Baylor wants us to think that. Uh, Let me go down here. Make sure I had that right before I. University of. Yeah. Most of the Power Five conference schools are on here. Okay. University of. Yeah. Texas, El Paso, Texas, Dallas, Arlington, Austin. San Antonio. So there's five. That's pretty impressive. All those schools are tier one already. Yeah. But you know who's not on there also? Who? TCU. Interesting. Yeah. Well, but I do think it's like, so right, TCU started as like a liberal arts school. Well, then I had this question, like, I bet there's just certain criteria that schools, private schools can't hit because they just don't have the resources, even if they are really prestigious in what they do. Right. Because then there were also some schools on the tier two list or the R2 list uh-huh. that surprised me as well that I would have thought I'd been on your one. 
and uh, our, had R one status ready. Really? Um. Yeah, I'm just looking over this. R one schools, all the UC California schools. That's not surprising though. Oh really? Like Texas Tech's on there though. On the R two or R one? I would have definitely thought Baylor. Well, but so here's the thing, right? So Texas Tech, I bet all of their like, wh- oh, where's A and M? I'm also interested. They've got to be R one. Because yeah, they're R one. Okay, because Texas Tech has a very um, predominant like school about not not agriculture, but like what is it when it's animals vet uh yeah no not like that stuff but particularly like biology no zoology um yeah i mean just to do with like animals and veterinary things and um you know particular things that interested like people like homesteading in the past like 400 years you know what i mean like that's what that is like homesteading stuff that's what is like um west virginia is already on there r1 well, they probably have a good forestry program. Do you yeah, know but what I you mean? can't have one good program be R one. Is that we, true? We had one good program for a long time. What is it though? Our one good program? Yeah. I don't know. Somebody who knows Baylor better than me. Religion. <laughs> I bet Baylor has one of the best religion programs in the world. Well, but that doesn't have to do with research in the way that like like by like um oh, Whoa, oh no. Everybody's still is there. Is it okay? Yeah, sorry. Everybody's still there. <laughs> I just kicked our computer. <laughs> um, like that has to do with Sort of the arts and humanities and not the sciences. I guess I'm just saying my point would be it's like when you get an award and you realize, oh, everybody got this award. <laughs> yeah, not great. And I'm like, Whoa. It does sort of make me think of um, I had been assured by many people, not that I was asking this question, but anytime I'd be like, what's holding us up? Like, what's the thing? Because it's like since I came to Baylor, I feel like the only thing I've heard anybody talk about and it's been over a decade at this point. Is like how we're trying to get R1 status. Well, I think it's you have to have at least two Big 12 football championships. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and then how did Texas Tech get in? Um, yeah, good point. And they have said a lot of it is like, uh, like I've had people say like, oh, well, we're never going to be R1 until they um, officially like have a thing that supports Oh, the LGBTQ I thought of that. Community. Yeah, BYU is uh, R2. Okay. So uh, these are some schools that are R2 that surprised me, okay? Okay. TCU. Sure. Um, I think BYU. So SMU. Okay. Um, Rutgers, that surprised me. St. Louis University, very prestigious. Yeah, my Isn't cousin it? went there. So, like, it mustn't just be are you good at, like, the fine arts, right? No, it's definitely not are you good at the fine arts, okay. I think. Because I think of, I, I'm sure they are, but I don't really think of the Ivy League schools as like big science schools. I think of them as like no, but the they heart are. and soul of the fine arts in America. And if you want to do that on that level, you go to MIT if it's for sciences. Sure. The, but I think it has to do with like the research you're producing. Yeah. You know? It's just stupid. I hate that we boil down the status of a university to are you good at science? I hate that as well. I don't think that's what education should be. I don't think that's what universities should be. Um, I once saw um, a thing that said, it's like, we can create dinosaurs. And then it said, this is why universities have scientists. And then the next frame was, should we create dinosaurs? This is why we have fine arts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That's so interesting. Well, here's the thing I want to say. Congratulations. You thought we were getting a more. <laughs> yes, I thought it was a better award, but also I think that um, congratulations to Dr. Linda Livingston. 
yes. in her team for uh, completing a process that a lot of people before her had worked really hard at doing and failed. But well, did put some things in place. Sure. But um, no, I like to think of them all as failures. okay. All the failures in front of her. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Livingston, for doing the thing. You know why they got this? Why? Because of Dr. Jonathan Tran. Really? No, I just I like to think he's. I, the I think that as well. That's he, what I've chosen to believe. Yeah, I think who else worships here? We got to give everybody worships here credit. Yeah. It's because of him and Candy Can and yeah, all the people who yeah. we like. Yeah, all they our social worker professors. All of our social worker professors. They're the reason. Um. Well, anyhow, that's um that's the thing I wanted to say was congratulations, Taylor. Okay. Uh-huh. The pandemic has screwed up everything for our lives. Okay. But here's a silver lining. Okay. I had forgotten that the Summer Olympics were delayed a year. Yeah. So instead of having to wait a year and a half for the Winter Olympics. Yeah, we just had to wait like six months. And guess it. Yeah. I love the Winter Olympics so much. You do? Oh, yeah. Oh, do you think it's... Okay, so here's a question. I also love the Winter Olympics. I love the Summer Olympics infinity times more okay do you think do you think it's like a, a geographical where we grew up it must be i mean because the summer olympics are conceivably much more accessible right we could all get out and run down the street and say i did the hundred right um i mean the amount of people who go ski jumping in a lifetime has got to be yeah point zero one percent of the population and if you live in a place where that's already happening you probably have a higher yeah well even like skiing right like right, i grew yeah. up in wisconsin but um had it not been for my rich friend's dad probably would have never skied but he right. took me every weekend it's not like an easy sport just to get into right it takes money time commitment. right yeah um but i also just feel like you know how that like christmas has a feel of like magic yeah i kind of feel like the winter olympics do too well, Wherever I think, the places they film, it just like looks so beautiful. I think and, it's the snow. Yeah, it's you the know, snow. like it just looks so pretty and. Yeah. Will you get to see snow this week? Mm-hmm. You will. Okay. Well, they just had a whole bunch. Oh. Okay. Going to Wisconsin, listeners. Yeah. But then it was like they had a heat wave of fifty degrees again. Oh. So it may be gone. Hopefully, they get dumped on again. Yeah. Hundred feet for me. Hundred feet. I would love that. Seems dangerous. There's this place when I go to the Kiwana Peninsula of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Uh huh. It's like the one if you look at the map of the Upper Peninsula, the finger that sticks way out. Okay. Oh yeah. And it's, um, they have this. If you drive up there, there's like a, a little road. Road. What do you call it? Roadway. Uh-huh. No, what are things the side? Wayside. A road. A oh. wayside. Okay. Right. And um, the feature there is this very tall. It looks like a side of a, a syringe. It's like a measuring mark. It's like every feet, you know, like a couple uh-huh. feet. And it's like their highest snowfall year ever was like 42 feet. And 42 like feet? Something like that. It's just so tall. Gosh, I wish we had Siri today. That seems dangerous. Alexa. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I guess now granted, it doesn't fall all at once. But right, of course. if you're thinking about snow plows pushing snow to the side and it builds up i bet it got really high that year yeah really high so uh what's your favorite winter olympic event um oh well let me think i think um when i was a child it was um i can't think of the right word ice dancing Ice dancing. What's it called? Well, no, ice no, skating. No. That's a, no ice dancing is part of it. Is I know, thing. I know, but I was ice skating, like sort of, especially um, 
the women and couples. I find that to be true in most things. Like gymnastics, I'm also mostly in- interested in like the sports, the the events the women do. Like the horse gives me nothing. I don't care about it. You know what I mean? Sure. Um. But I really liked ice skating. Also, I feel like when I was growing up in the '90s. It was like contentious. There was like things going on behind the scenes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm talking about Tanya Harding yeah. and all that stuff, which I think I found very interesting. Um, as I've gotten older, um, ice skating kind of makes me nervous. I think about how many times I would fall down, and then I always get worried. <laughs> this is an irrational fear, but I get, always get worried I would cut my fingers off, or they would get cut oh, off from the skate. As weights. I was trying to like stand back. Up. Yeah, that's very conceivable. That could happen. Yeah, and so there's that, and so um, I think I really like um, I like watching hockey. Like I like team sports, mm-hmm. um, and. I really do just like like skiing and so yeah. like that. I think so. And the I mean the ski jumping is like that's that's amazing. Yeah. Do you ever see that Eddie the Eagle movie? I never did, you but I remember that. it being really good. Yeah. Um. And then obviously bobsledding because of what's it called? Cool runnings. Cool runnings. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm trying to think what my favorite is. I also I went bobsledding one time. It was so scary, but Ooh, cool. Careful. In Latvia, they took us to like a military barracks and. You had to bobsled? I got to bobsled, yeah. Did you really do it? You went down. Uh huh. How fast were you guys going? 100 miles an hour? Mm, no, but I think it was like 90. No. Had, as we were like finishing, it was like there was a thing. Maybe 80? I don't know. You were going 80 miles an hour in a bobsled? Really fast. You but could it have was, died. But it was. <laughs> well, but also it was summertime, so they had wheels on them. Oh, like the Alpine slide. Yeah. Still, you went. What is that? You went that fast in an alpine slide? I think so. That's I what I remember it saying. I, I think you. You think I'm it, wrong? I think you thought it was 80 miles an hour. Taylor, think of how fast that is. Yeah, it's really if, fast. If it would have spilled, you would have died. Um. For sure, no question. Well, they had put on like another. No, you would have died. Okay. If you're in a car going 80 miles an hour, Ka- you're gonna Kathleen die. Kathleen went too. We went to Latvia together, so I. That's There's no true. way you went. That's true. Call Kathleen Post. <laughs> hey, here's a picture in the meantime of the barometer in the up see that very top is it the went record away. kathleen either hung up on you or has answered oh no it's ringing Here, oh. pull it back down okay hold on okay see that i'm listener i'm showing taylor the picture yeah that's of, very high yeah and the record was i was wrong 390 some inches which was 30 some feet oh hello kathleen yeah okay you remember kathleen. when you and taylor went to latvia and you went on that bobsled you're thing? on the air hold on what Remember when we went to Latvia and what? You were on a bobsled with wheels in the summertime? Yeah. Did you go, you think, like 90 miles an hour in that thing? <laughs> no. How fast do you think you went? Um, to- I don't know. It was pretty fast. Like top like- end, maybe like 30 miles an hour, maybe? No. Yeah, I-, I was going to say 40. Okay. okay. But probably not 90. Definitely not. I'm not great at guessing things. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Kathleen. Kathleen, I... Okay. Okay. Um, we just had to clear that up on the air. Okay, great. I'm glad. So. All right. Merry Christmas. Okay. Merry Christmas. Bye. All right. Bye. Okay, so I don't think it was 90. Well, that seems reasonable also now that I like really think about it, but it was fast. Yeah. I don't doubt that. It felt fast. 
It felt incredibly fast. Oh, I mean, 40 miles an hour and something like that? That would be screaming. You still could have got seriously injured, maybe died at 40 miles an hour. That's true. I mean, think if you're in a car at 40 miles an hour, you're going to... Yeah, you could hurt. You could get hurt really Real bad. Well, uh, that was great. Thanks, Kathleen, for your participation. Um, So the Winter Olympics are coming, folks. You need to get excited. Where are they this year? Beijing. Oh, that's right, because we're thinking about protesting again. Well, the United States has said that, like, we won't go or something. Athletes won't or we won't? No, we won't. It is in Beijing 2022. What does that mean, that we won't go, but, like, the well, athletes It's common fanfare go. to send forms of diplomats to the opening ceremonies and oh. to kind of have involvement. Okay, but uh, the athletes can still go. Well, I, I think it's a, they've worked their whole life for this moment, and you're going to take it away from them because of the political. Not saying that's not worth it sometimes. I'm just saying. What? Why are we mad? Um, oh, I think human in, rights violations. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know. Those I mean, are Well, didn't the bad. Chinese, like, kick, jail Muslims in mass? Yes, in yeah, something like that happened. So, it's terrible that we don't know that. Oh, my gosh. There's so many things. Yeah, it never ceases to quit. I saw a tweet I liked that was like, I think we can all agree that there are too many things. <sighs> And I do think we can agree, all agree that there are too many things. Yeah, there are too many things. Taylor, do you have anything? Yes, Josh, I wanted to do a hard push for succession for you. Oh, uh, yeah, this is um, this is coming towards me. Yeah, so listener, if you have or have not watched Succession, let us know. Either way, I would like to know. Um, and yeah, I think I'm... Well, the last TV show I did a hard push for Josh worked for a short time, The West Wing, but then it, well, it's really I long. Watched, I'm thinking now maybe I'll only watch one, maybe two episodes. I said three, but. Of Succession? Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's, I think you would be very interested in it. Like, I don't just think you'd like it. I think it would make you, I think you would have, it would prompt you to like ask questions okay about myself no i don't i yeah i tried not to say that in a way that sounded like about your own life but just like generally kind yeah, of. so it's a fun cerebral show it is not very fun okay <laughs> but it is cerebral okay. yeah you do end up asking a lot of that qu- is my question in my category hey um i think the calling bird person lied it's calling bird right yeah i'm um it's going to be a new strategy for me on social media. Yeah. Intentionalized no, I'm to so get nervous. traction. I can't. Well, it's strange to me that you haven't already been doing that. You haven't yeah, been doing that? Yeah, you said that. I think that's like a statement about how dishonest I am. No, not that you're dishonest. I feel like you don't. Like you do lie for fun sometimes. Well, that's stated pretty dramatic. Give me an example. No, I well, I mostly just mean like the. Uh, church fair. Oh, the church fair. Yeah, that is very fun for me. Yeah, yeah, I and you, I think it's very funny because it no, it feels pretty obvious. Except freshmen are like really getting. Well, that's there. part of I think the joy is it's like, who will believe this? But I think that's also like the internet is like there's always people out there who are going to believe it. Misinformation. Yeah. I'm maybe part of the misinformation campaign. Well, which, which can, there's got to be innocuous stuff like calling birds. Right. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, but. Stuff that's so well, but it's like um, you know, it's like the onion and like um, B Bl's above. No, what's their name? The Christian uh, buzzard version? bees. Yeah, how it used Babylon to be. Babylon B. 
Babylon Bee. That's like stuff like that used to be, but it did used to be funny. Like yeah. lately, Babylon Bee especially is like, this is there's nothing funny here. You've made no jokes. Yeah. Um, and I just don't keep track of the Onion anymore. I don't ever like, see Babylon Bee anymore. Well, it's not in my like personal. Did it fail? No, it still exists. It's just like they're always being like. It became partisan, like everything else in the world. Yeah, it's like Democrats say. Republicans only back Trump for their own good. Ha ha ha. And it's like, what? That's not a joke. Yeah. Um, so. Well, anything else? I feel like there was one more thing. Oh, I, I thought we should maybe do a quick little sports uh, recap before the end of the year. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is our last show of the year. Yeah. Oh, last year we did it in a year show. Let's do that at our New Year's show. A new, like, like a... Like the year in remembering. Okay. Okay, uh, great. Sports. You want to do that for sports, though? Yeah, we'll do sports in oh, here. Okay. M- Milwaukee Bucks. Yeah. NBA champions of the universe. Baylor men's basketball. Yeah. Uh, women's basketball was... Um, was it Arizona? Women's basketball. Yeah, because didn't they beat... Stanford or something. Yeah, who, no, they beat UConn, who beat us in the semifinals. Baylor, remember that? Yeah. And that girl got fouled at the end of the game, and they didn't call it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was Arizona. I think you're right. Yeah. What a great. That and, was a good run for Arizona. That was fun to watch. And they that, were like a four seed, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Like a three yeah, seed they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we were too, or maybe we, were, we were a two, two seed. seed. Yeah. Um. I thought. I thought the last Baylor women's game, like where they lost to UConn, that was so close and contentious mm-hmm. and blah, 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 was some of the best basketball I watched all year long. Yeah. So, so good. Yeah, it was. A, I remember it being just a great game. Yeah. Um, Atlanta Braves won the World Series. Yep, they sure did. And, and it, seemed, it, it seemed like everyone was rooting for them. Who was the WNBA? Was it Chicago? Uh, I think so, yeah. I think it was Chicago. And um, I remember that she's a household name. She was very emotional after the game. Uh, Diana Taurasi? No, Taurasi was. She didn't play for Chicago. Uh, Taurasi and Griner and somebody else all played together. Oh, Griner, yeah. that was so fun. Um, Got that Baylor connection. Yeah, and then you had NBA, NFL, the um, Tom Brady won his Super Bowl last yeah. year. Yeah, you love that, didn't you? I hated every moment for of the, that. The Bucks. Um. Yeah, I, that I mean that was kind of wild though, and like of note. I have to tell you, I don't know who won the Stanley Cup. I don't either, but I like watching hockey. But I don't even the stars. I don't like really keep track of them. I feel um, like maybe it was the Tampa Bay Lightning or something. The Tampa Bay Lightning. But yeah, great year in review. Yeah, great sports things going on. Great year for the oh yeah Chicago Sky. Yeah, and who is the gal who got emotional at the end? She's famous. She's like a... Yeah. Um, Very emotional. Because I remember talking to my neighbor, Sophia Young, about it. Sophia Young was on that 2005 Baylor Women's National Championship team. Really? Yeah. Okay, Stanley Cup. It was the Lightning versus the... Canadians? Is that what I'm seeing? Oh. Canadians. I'm not maybe reading the thing right here. This is very exciting. Well, anyhow, what are you looking at? 
<laughs> I'm looking at. Well, I'm trying to look up the like roster for the Chicago Sky. Oh yeah, you haven't found the name yet. To see who is who is famous. If you say the name, I'll recognize it right away. Okay, hold on. Let me look. Listener, do you know? Candace Parker. Candace Parker. Yeah. That was it. You know what is a thing of note that I like? Also, is that both of our professional leagues are... Well, I feel like the women has always been kind of international. It was the Lightning. I was right. Oh. So Tampa Bay won a Stanley Cup and a Super Bowl this year. Wow. What a great year How for I bet they feel team. happy. Yeah. Okay, let's make some. Let's make a guess about Baylor's playoff game before we go. Oh, the Sugar Bowl. Yeah. I don't know because I think they could beat Ole Miss. Ole Miss, but I think if they played ten times, Ole Miss wins six. So, okay, so I'm gonna say you got a sixty percent chance for them for uh, Ole Miss. Yeah, but I'm gonna say Baylor. I'm gonna say Baylor. You're saying it the way people say it that I hate. What? Like, uh, announcers on TV always say Beller. Oh, Baylor. Baylor. Baylor, I'm going to say 28, Ole Miss 24. Okay. If we win, what do you think? Um, I'm going to say Baylor, too, even though I, I sort of feel the way you do. Yeah. Um, which is not to say that actually I think Ole Miss is a better team. Yeah. Um. But maybe they're they're sort of more used to that kind of setting. Yeah. A very high pressure thing. Yeah. Whereas like the Big Twelve is just not exactly it's not that way week in, week out, you know? Right. Yeah. Um what was I gonna say? What do you, and if we but if we do win, mm-hmm. what do you think do you think that affects our like preseason rankings for next year at all? Mm-hmm. Or do you think no? No. I think recruiting classes do that more than finishes. Okay, makes sense, um, makes sense. I do think Baylor is top 25 next year. You do? To start the season. I feel like that makes sense. Because uh, does Abrams come back or not? Yeah. Yeah. Abrams is, I think, a junior. Yeah, he's he's kind of for me. If we win, it's because he'll have 100-plus yards. He's amazing. Yeah, he is. And that story is amazing, too, right? I don't know the story. Oh, that he played defense until this year? Oh, really? Yeah. I did not know. And the offensive... I I'll mean, I honest, think the receiver I'm coaches were considered like, a fair weather bent or fair weather fan. I didn't really know much about Baylor this year. Right. Coming into the year because you thought it wouldn't be that no. good. Um, yeah. The coaches kind of said like, hey, we need somebody else on offense. Do you all have somebody you could sort of like uh, send our way? And the defensive coaches said, uh, you know, they thought about who might be good. Yeah. And they sent Abrams over. And then he was amazing. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Oh, we should also say this. Okay. I've gotten and gotten into Texas State football this year. Uh, high school football. Because did you see? You? Lor- yeah, Lorena won a state championship. Yeah, state spring. championship. And China Springs plays. China Spring plays in 15 minutes or something. I think they play at three again. Wow. So we have two local communities who are in the state, and I didn't. They played each other this year. China Spring won. Okay. Well, for some reason, I imagine China Spring is like a. It's bigger school. Yeah. Yeah. Because they split the 6A schools. Yeah, but Lorena was 13-2 and two coming into a state championship game. So one of those losses was to China Spring, okay. who's also in state championship. Game. So that would be really cool for this area if both won. Yeah. So go Cougars. Congratulations, Leopards. Yeah. Has has Midway ever won? They were in the state championship 
two years ago, I think it was, or was it last year? They get really because they, I know they do really well. I wondered if they'd ever won. Um, they were in the I don't know I can't think they were in the state championship in like um the fall of 2018 I think or 2017 because I went out they played Grand Prairie and I went out and oh watched. really yeah yeah no this was more recent um, than I'm thinking of okay Grand Prairie Gophers also three rounds into the state championships yeah state playoffs I mean Grand Prairie yeah okay. Well, I mean, if we add this to our Tran interview, we're looking at almost two hours, so we better hang Ooh, up. Yeah. We so love you guys. So thank you, listeners. Have a great year. Merry Have Christmas. Have very safe holidays. Yes. And we will talk to you again in January. January.